Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many publications. I now see him on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business, and all these other uh, TV outlets. He's uh, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. And uh, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashtar, in his live new studios here in <laughs> Salesforce Boston. It's amazing. Who's sitting to the left of you before we do the introductions here? You know, it's, it's, my, it's the Ray Wong twin here in Boston, keeping me uh, focused on trailblazing. <laughs> so anyways, yes, so Bala is one of the top followers on Twitter. Um, he is number one for CIOs, CMOs, and of course, those looking for business advice. He's also on TV frequently and an author himself, but we've got three awesome guests talking about some very, very deep topics. Who do we have today, Bala? I'm gonna introduce three guests because we're gonna have a different format uh, for this week's show. Instead of 20 minute segments, we're just gonna have almost like a panel discussion. And uh, our first guest I'm gonna introduce is Trisha Wang, co-founder of, of Sudden Compass. With an astronaut eye and anthropographic curiosity, Trisha is obsessed with discovering the unknown. She's a global tech uh, anthropographer living at the intersection of data, design, and digital. She's a co-founder of Sudden Compass, a consulting firm that helps enterprises move at the speed of their customers by unlocking new growth opportunities in big data and human insights in their digital transformation. Her work has been published uh, in numerous uh, media outlets. Trisha works with Fortune 500 companies, and her field of research uh, has been featured in you know every outlet, every major outlet that you know. In fact, her, uh, she's a sought-out keynote speaker, and her TED Talk on thick data has crossed over 1.6 million views, the first million views in less than six months. You can follow Trisha on Twitter at TRI, C-I-A-W-A-N-G. Welcome, Trisha. Thanks, Bala. Thanks, Ray. You guys are legends. That was the show. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of legends, my next guest is Esteban Kolsky. Esteban doesn't like me to go over his bio, but so I'm only giving a short version. He's a principal founder of uh, ThinkJar, an advisory research think tank focused on customer strategies. He's got over 30 years of experience prior to uh, the founder of ThinkJar. He spent eight years at Gartner uh, advising vendors, organizations on how to transform in an interconnected collaborative and digital world while seeking long-term engagement and more value in return. You can follow Esteban on LinkedIn and all of his work at estebankolsky.com. Welcome Esteban to Disrupt TV. That's it. There, you usually say so much more. I feel like you're <laughs> You've been cheating, dude. He lets me know that I spend too much time on his bio every time, so I shortened it. Uh, I'm, I'm last, very yeah. jealous of Patricia's room, by the way. I, I like the soundproof qualities of the room. <laughs> Our last guest is Steve Wilson, uh, who's the Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on digital identity and privacy. Steve has worked with I ICT innovation, research, development, and analysts for over 25 years. His coverage areas span business research, themes of digital safety and privacy, data the decision, and consumerization of IT. His advisory services to CIOs, CISOs, CPOs, and IT architects include security practice benchmarking, privacy engineering, and privacy impact assessment. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve underscore lockstep, L-O-C-K, S-T-E-P. Welcome, everybody. How you doing, Steve? Oh, all right. Oh, hey, I was wondering, is that Steve's actual face or is it frozen? Is he coming here? I don't know. I think Steve is there. But hey, all we're talking about is he gets cut up. I think he's a little frozen. If you get off video, it might work. But hey, look, today we're going to talk about data ownership. Here are two topics we're going to address. First one is, what it means to have data ownership and why people are concerned about data ownership so and and these new models that are there so let's start with this first topic what does data ownership mean jump in so what does data ownership mean what does data mean 
what is this? What? <laughs> I mean, just here's here's a, the, the, we can start from the very simple concept of like you know what is data and who owns that data, right? Because I think that that's that's a, the, the the core of everything we can discuss. If you consider it to be data, transactional operational pieces of information, then whoever produces those transactional pieces of information should own it. But is that all that data is? What about personal data? What about something that is identifiable to us? You know, PII, personal identifiable. What, what about my DNA? Where does that fit? Well, mm -hmm. part of PII, right? Steve was going to say something, but he got Steve, you're going to jump in. What do you think, John? Well, look, I mean, this data and this data, we know that there is um, copyright. We know that there's intellectual property rights. Some of this stuff is not really intuitive. And the law changes about this stuff all the time. The, the problem with ownership of personal information is that Vala, um, Esteban makes a good point. It, it comes from different places. It is the product of some different processes. Sometimes those are proprietary processes. If I've spent a lot of time researching the latest big data algorithm, and I've got a way of extracting insights out of the matrix, um, that may be the output of some serious R&D, and it may have some serious commercial consequences. And I'm going to feel as though I own that. Now, the intersection is that if that insight is, a, is personal, and if it's about third parties, I think that we should step back from ownership for a minute and work out what outcomes are we trying to achieve. Let's assume that we're looking for privacy. Let's assume that we're looking to avoid exploiting people and, and abusing them and harming them online. And it turns out that ownership is not a really good lens to look at this problem through. Um, one of the challenges of big data is that there's so much information floating behind our backs. There are algorithms running sight unseen that's finding out risks about me. Now, it's not great that there are insurance companies out there doing risk profiles on me. That's not great. But just think for a minute about whether ownership is the way to correct that. Because the problem is that I don't even know what's going on. So as a person, I, I don't think I can own that data. I just don't think it's sensible. But, but here, here's the deal. I mean, you make a good point and, and something that I will give you for the first and only time this in the next hour. You make a good point, you know, in saying that, uh, you know, you put the work on the creating the algorithm and processing the data and creating an insight. But if I don't give you access to my data, your algorithm is worthless, right? And, and I'm I don't need to give you access to my data. You're, you're getting my data from, from my internet activities. You're, you're working out my sexuality from my tweet stream. You're, you're working out my risk of diabetes because you're looking at what I'm ordering from fast food. I don't, right. I don't give you permission. But, but um, you're now, that, you're conventional that. privacy law will limit your ability Wait to minute, use that. But you're getting that because when I send that for Twitter, which I'm no longer on Twitter, when I send that for Twitter, <laughs> I said, you have my permission to use my data for whatever you want. So, I mean, we can keep I, going about step but by I think what's step. happening is, I want to jump in here, is that the reason why that's happening is that you can say yes, like companies can say yes, we got consent from users for us to be able to use their data and whatever they want. But the reality is that right now, data arbitrage is what's happening. Is that arbitrage, economic arbitrage, is when you take advantage of price discrepancies and a lack of knowledge, which is totally legal to be able to, be able to make more money or to sell something for more. But what's happening with data arbitrage is that our structures and our collective understanding and personal understanding have not caught up with how tech companies are using personal data and the, the legal constructs they put into place. And what they're doing is they're saying they're using privacy as a transactional legal structure to say, look, we already obtained consent. If you're using, on our platform, then we have full right to do this. And if you don't want to have consent, don't be on our platform. So, you know, like we're just getting, we're going to collect it and get the value out of it. But the reality is that they're taking advantage of a lack of overall understanding around data. And now we're starting to see a shift and how society and how governments and how companies will be, you know, yeah, really trying to find ways to stop. You're mixing two things. You're mixing commercial, commercialization and, and legality. The legality is there's such a thing as informed consent, which is a legal, is a legal entity that existed forever that we use in everything except for the internet. There's no informed consent in the internet. And, and we, the reason we don't apply it is because we can make money from the lack of informed consent. So, I mean, right. you're agreeing to that. There's that's data arbitrage. It's you're you're taking advantage of the lack of understanding. But you're saying you're saying that the law hasn't caught up. But the law has been there. We just decided. Was, in my mind, there was a, a meeting somewhere in 1993 where like 10 people got together in a room and said, "We have two ways to fund this. We can charge people for access to a network to communicate, or we can take the data and give it to them for free." And all 10 voted to get to take the data and give it to for free, and they never get the choice to the users of which way they wanted to do it. 
So we, we're coming at a disadvantage on, on something that, 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 you know, that, that, that was never put at, at, a, at a vote to us. I mean, we don't get an option. We get an option of participating or not, but that's not a real option because you're going to be the only hermit in the, in the world. If you don't well, participate I mean, in the network, Esteban, I don't think we're disagreeing or that I'm mixing anything up. I think we're on the same page. Like what you just described. Let me, let me jump back in here real quickly, right? When we talk about this ownership, right? We, we talked about two parts here, right? One is who created the data, right? Um, and we also talk about the fact that is that inherently something about you that you can't change, right? Does that change the way you think about this? I mean, are we talking about personal data? Or are we talking about ownership? Because I want to go back to what Steve was talking about is that I love, the reason why I've always loved Steve's work is that he's the one who actually opened, really gave me a path to open my eyes to understanding how we can talk about personal data without applying property and ownership as a construct. And it, he was the one who opened my eyes to really dig into, you know, he the laws you know, of 19, you know, all the 1980 um, that was set in place in 1980 where it, it skirts around, it's much more about looking at collecting and then also use in you know rights of use but Steve you can explain this much better but I really think that we have to make a distinction when we're talking about ownership versus just another construct you know so that's my question back to you Ray is which one are you actually talking well, about we're talking about it without the concept of it being a property or about consent let's start there at the purest form Steve and then work our way through data ownership and then some of these other uh, sections that we're talking about here yeah, so look, thanks, Tricia, and you did it really well. Um, so 1980, the OECD, um, pre-internet, they were trying to work out how to facilitate trade and commerce and how to make sure that personal information rights didn't get in the way. And they set a number of privacy principles that in a nutshell is that if there's information that's personal and personal information is anything that's about me, doesn't matter where it's come from, if it's come from an algorithm or if it's come from me giving consent or if it's come from surveillance, um, personal information, people are not supposed to collect information if they don't need it. People are supposed to be guarded and restrained in what they do with the information once they've got it. You're not supposed to repurpose personal information. So if I have um, got your Twitter history and, I, and I've got that because I want to run metrics or analytics, I am not supposed to repurpose that information to work out people's health state, not without telling them. And the final thing is that if you've got personal information that you don't need anymore, then you must get rid of it. Now, fast forward 50 years, and these are the problems that we're grappling with, you know, information is toxic waste. Um, information gets breached. Everybody agrees that we've actually got too much information, it becomes a liability. So those principles have been with us for 40 years, they are the bedrock of the GDPR, which by the way is not new, the GDPR um, is a consolidation of European law that's 20 years old. Um, over 110 countries in the world, um, with the US being the, the standout exception, have laws that restrain the use of personal information. Now they're not perfect, and um, they have tended to be a bit of a toothless tiger in the face of the Facebooks of the world that do what they like. But you know, you don't let the, the, the the best be the enemy of the good. The privacy law is a work in progress. And, and fundamentally, it works without this idea of ownership because ownership is so difficult. Um, you know, who, who owns my medical records? Is it the doctor or is it me? If the medical record is a bunch of blood tests, it's kind of objective data and maybe I own it. Medical record is the doctor's opinion established over 15 years of knowing me. That's intellectual property of the doctor. Now, some of these things are quite awkward issues. And the idea that somebody's got intellectual property about my health, it's an awkward issue, but you don't fix it by owning anything. And back to Ray's point, who owns my DNA? 50% of my DNA is shared by my kids. And there's some really interesting, very, very difficult cases. They got rights, man. Henry they got rights on your data. Well, <laughs> no, you know, the Henrietta Lacks story, the, the poor woman who's, who's, whose blood tests wound up being in, in, involved with the intellectual property of drug companies left and right, and her kids and her family got dragged into that because they share the DNA. So oh, these yeah. are difficult issues, but they do not get solved by just arbitrarily saying that anybody owns data. Steve, uh, last week we had a dean from Harvard University on our show and uh, a CIO advisor from uh, Arizona State University, and both talked about uh, the trusted learner network whereby ASU and Harvard, uh, they're leveraging a distributed ledger to capture student credentials from the first day they enter university to their four, six, eight year journey. 
And as they achieve expertise with the completion of every course, uh, in, on the distributed ledger, the faculty administration and possible employers are notified so that you can bridge the gap in terms of the skill set you need and potential internship opportunities for these students. I didn't speak to a career advisor until my last semester in grad school. So six years, I didn't take advantage of internships and co-ops. I, was, I wasn't sure that you ever spoke to a career advisor, Vala, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I listened to her, but you know, we can talk about whether I actually one step further on that, right? You're agreeing that your information and you know any type of information could be used to give you a personalized approach to education that you can have that is based on your knowledge gained and all those things, right? What I'm what I'm saying is that you said Steve said at the beginning, using data ownership may not be the proper lens. Here, it's more like access to your data and visibility with multiple stakeholders, all of whom have agreed that finding jobs for students while they're in school is a good thing. Uh, my question to Steve is, is access really the frame of reference we should be using versus ownership? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that there's a whole lot of, in fact, if we just decouple from privacy for a minute, for a minute and think about data as a resource and I, I want to avoid the difficult metaphors but data is clearly something that's powering the new digital economy and there are properties of data that matter um, the quality of the data where does data come from what's the provenance of the data um, what's the fidelity of the data can I guarantee that this data has not changed from the time it was dug up um, now personal information I think is the special category of that um, so if this personal information that has uh, been produced by some sort of collection process, then what was the intended purpose of that information? And is it possible to think about supplying data and having a, like a data assay that flows with the data and, and tells you what the data is supposed to be used for? And therefore, can you give access to data? Can you set parameters or metadata that establish what you think the access rights should be? And can you withdraw those rights from time to time? Now, I think the other practical issue that we're about to get into is like DRM. This is going to be very much like the old digital rights management stuff of the 1980s and 90s. And that all fell in a heap because it's very difficult. Once data is in the wild, it's very difficult to keep tags on it. Yes, but so, so two things. Number one, we keep going back to, to access and you can, have, you can give access without ownership. I cannot let you access something that I don't own. If it's in the public domain, you can access it in the same way that I can. If I own it, you need to get my permission to access it. So, I mean, is that access or consent? Either way. So that's the second point that I said earlier that 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 nobody responded to, which is a concept of informed consent, which is a legal entity that exists all over the world that says you when you say okay in the TSA for any company, you're actually using informed consent. We told you what we're going to do, and you agreed to it, even if you don't understand it. Term, terms and conditions, not TSA, right? Terms and conditions, right? Yeah, T T C. Yeah, whatever. But, terms but of I use. Asked everyone, I did respond to. It. I was saying that informed consent isn't enough when there, the understanding isn't there. You can have the laws that are there, yes. like for sure we have laws in place, but it doesn't mean that we have an actual understanding, or if, if people can comprehend the complexity of yeah. what the systems are uh, going to. That, that so exact argument. Right. That exact argument made it to the Supreme Court of the United States and the Supreme Court of the United States. And I cannot speak for every country in the world, but the Supreme Court in the United States, when faced with the issue of informed consent, said that informed consent is the responsibility of the user, not the provisioner. I'll give you the information. You don't I think understand it's still it. up for grabs. This is why we just had the whole Facebook, uh, you know, right. hearing. Yes. Right. Like yes. That, yes, it may have been the Supreme Court, but it's totally up for grabs that discussion of how much society actually understands right. what these tech platforms are are doing and how transparent they're actually being. With and, our then, data. and then we're gonna go back. Then we're gonna go back to the discussion of personal responsibility. I mean, if if you if, if you admit if your doctor tells you you gotta take this drug and you take it without asking questions and something bad happens, it's on you. I mean, if you know that there's a side effect that is fifteen percent, can't possibly be on you. It is the world is too complicated for that. That no. that. Maybe for Esteban, if you're able to like comprehend everything, like you're literally able to comprehend ecosystem levels, like complexity in that moment for everything you're consenting to, but most people can't. That's just a reality no, for everything. No, no, don't, don't. 
don't, don't make it about that. I'm not saying that I'm able to comprehend everything. I'm saying that like everybody else, I make trade-offs. I may not understand all the implications, but I understand sufficient to understand that like the, the, the value that I get. I don't. The problem with that, Esteban, is that people have got no idea about how their personal information is, is flowing in the internet. They don't know how it's being used. Yeah. Um, this is beyond yeah. comprehension. And the, the asymmetry that Tricia went to before, the smartest people in the world are out there not solving cancer. The smartest people in the world developing big data algorithms for Facebook. And there's no way that people can take can exercise personal responsibility in that space. The asymmetry is too gross. You go to you go to the USA today, and there's a couple hundred cookies that get updated on you just by going to the mm. website, right? Yep. There's you're no right. way you're going to be aware of that. There's no way you're going to be aware of that every time you go. These companies aren't being transparent either about huh? how they're using data. You're not informing. You're you're saying you provided no. informed consent, but you provided informed consent in such a way where the company wasn't being fully transparent either. And this is why it is useful to look at past precedents of laws because, yeah. like. I, I promise you that if you actually track the information and the use, it's available. We don't do it because we make the trade-off where we say, oh, screw it, I'm just gonna pay in reverse. I don't when you say we, I think it's important to define who we is if who you speak for, because it may be a very highly informed and educated group, but I can tell you that myself and for most people who I work with and people who aren't in technology and as informed even as this group here is that it, they feel helpless, they feel powerless, and now these are the only networks they can use to communicate with their yeah. families. And yeah. No alternative, even and, if they know and for those of you. For those of you listening, we're, we're talking about the topic of data ownership and what data ownership means. And so far, we've actually have had a very intense debate as to can we even own data? And uh, where does that data, you know, do we even have any control over that ownership of data? And you know, are there other things related to it around rights or consent or access? So, so let me ask you this question. I mean, it, it sounds like we're trying to solve a problem um, around data by using a term around data ownership. What problem does data ownership try to fix here? Because we, we've established a lot of problems with this. What problem does data ownership try to, try to fix? Yeah, what are we trying to fix here with data ownership? Why is there to, such a push I towards- I thought that we were going to, even though Steve will bark at this, I thought we were trying to go to the issue of privacy and data ownership. I mean, you own data that you can make private or not based on your decision. So you, you manage your privacy by giving access to data or not giving access to data. And to give access, my opinion, you need to own it. Otherwise, you cannot give access. So you, so your position is we can't have privacy without ownership of data because you can't grant access without ownership. Okay, okay. cool. Trisha, what do you think? Does you sound, does you, you're nodding head in a very different way here. I don't, but I, I think we are, we're going in circles. I already said that there's ways to talk about data in terms of um, I'm just clarifying everything. So pull out the arguments uh, out for everyone here. In terms of property without having to talk about its forms of ownership. And there's so much precedence about that. And when we talk about ownership, are we talking about private or public ownership? Or property is private or public? And the precedence, the precedences that I've been looking at are one going back to the enclosure movements and how land was moved from the commons over to enclosure where you can have common land, you can set as property, you can say, look, there's access rights, there's exclusion rights, there's manipulation rights, and it's exact, it does exactly what Steve was talking about, is that you can actually say, you can define as a group to say, this is how we're gonna manage the land. And in the same way, we should be looking at, this is how we're gonna manage our data without having to define ownership in the way that we're talking about right now, which is private privatization. And you're talking about then, data as a property right, is basically what you're saying. Right but not okay. as, as, as a commons property. And where we can be looking, I, I just think that it's very helpful to inform our discussion to look at all the history and all the historical precedents of how we've managed other resources. And another one that Steve has pointed out is you know, OECD laws about how you look at limitation and collection principles. But there's also look at, you know, Woodrow Herzog is a lawyer who's done a lot of work on looking at privacy and how you design for privacy. This is something I know that, you know, that we've been talking a lot about. And he says we can look actually back to consumer protection laws and look at how all these laws have been put in place to ensure that in the design of physical products that you can actually discourage deception, you can discourage abuse or decept, you know, this kind of um, dark design patterns that we're seeing now that I think somebody had just mentioned, I don't know if we have his consent to use his name, but he mentioned, look, I was trying to sign up for a conference and now they forced me to sign up for the sign up list. And that's the only way I could register for the conference. Those are dark patterns of design that we can look back to. So I don't, I think we're here to discuss all what ownership and privacy means, but I think it's very useful to look I don't, at- we, we, we even asked for permission if we could use his name on this. So look at that, look at that, look at that asking for permission already. Hey, I'm gonna see what he next, 
I'm going to see Woody next week at a um, at a privacy event, the Asia Pacific Privacy um, Professionals, uh, and we're speaking together next week. His work is fantastic, um, and and he goes to whether or not it's reasonable for consumers to be asked to control their information. So how do you control something that you can't see? Right. Well, so I think the consumer rights is absolutely yeah. where to. Can, uh, can I just can I just riff on Trisha's point about consumer rights? Um, the the elephant in the room in a lot of this is is capitalism and the the, right. assu the assumption of a lot of low touch regulations has been that the market will work this out. Now, mm -hmm. the, you know, economics assumes that people have got transparency. They understand they're making informed choices. So, I think informed choice is actually the issue here. How do you make a choice about big data and know what's going on. The other is that you don't well, get safety as a I good outcome from market forces. And I think, yeah, I think everybody I agrees on this. No, that's I what think I most people look at the Ford Pinto and they go, you don't, you don't get car safety outcomes from market forces. So you, you need some sort of light touch or some sort of, um, you know, you need the right balance of regulation to protect people because consumer rights, we know that consumer rights do not get protected by the market. Well, we just got permission from the from our, our, from Matthew Halliday, who's, who actually provided that comment about you know the, these dark design principles. So that's kind of interesting. But let's switch topics. What's our second topic, uh, Bala? We're talking about uh, you know well, what, what's that second I'll, one? I'll start the second topic asking Steve. You know, as you advise government institutions and agencies or, or CXOs of, of of various size companies across multiple geographies, what are the concerns that they bring up to you? Uh, in terms of data ownership or data privacy, is there a common theme regardless of the geography or size of business in terms of the concerns that these business leaders have and, and how they look to you to guide them to perhaps overcome some of these concerns? I, I'll Look. summarize it in one, in, in one very brief question and then I'll let the, the experts take over. But like the question that I get more often is, what can I get away with? <laughs> That's not true. That can't be arbitrage, Esteban? That's another example. I never disagree with you. If yeah. You said, you said it much better than I can say it. <laughs> That's why I like it. You take you take my, my musings and, and like, you know, brain force and you make them sound good. So I'm not saying that, that, that it's not okay, arbitrage. Absolutely it's arbitrage. Wow, from brain arts to purified air. We're doing really well here. Next. Okay. <laughs> I, I no, think that seriously, I mean, they don't ask the question, where can I get, where can I get away with? But once we start talking, you know, about uh, things that they can do and the question of privacy and, and, and terms of use and access and all that comes up, it, it literally goes to like, you know, how much can I do while remaining compliant and still getting what I, what I need to get out of it? I mean, you're, you're a customer service, customer experience expert. So are they asking you in the spirit of Esteban, I want to deliver personalization at scale. I value speed. I value intelligent discourse. So how much can I glean from past behavior, touch points, and, and, and so that I have enough context to deliver the very best experience? Is that the spirit? Well, uh, I, I, I'm not an expert. I'm a centralizing point for people that have experiences. I talk to a lot of people and I synthesize sure. what they tell me, right? And, and, and you know, what they ask me is for my opinion based on what I learned and what I see other people do and what I see other people talk about. And that's why I tell them, I say like, look, what you can get away with should not be the guiding, the guiding, uh, you know, yardstick for what you're going to do. You know, no, what you do is consider, yeah, what, what, do you, what you should do should come from the respect that you have for your customers. Mm -hmm. And that conversation goes cold very, very quickly. But you know, Esteban, I have to say that you're, I mean, you're right that that's totally what I've heard from our partners and clients is that they are, they actually are just participating in data arbitrage where they're like, literally, how much, how much can we get away with? You know, there is the complicity of large companies, you know, mining data on the basis of just hoping that no one really understands the value of it because they know it's going to be valuable at one point. But I'm starting to hear the opposite and I really am. I'm, you know, can't name the actual names and people are actually saying to me like, look, we actually want to be not only compliant, 
but we actually want to do right because they're starting oh, yes. to there's awareness right now. i'm not saying everyone is that way but really there are people who, out there who are saying do we actually need to collect all of it what is the best way to hold on maybe we're not the best ones to hold on to because maybe we could get hacked or maybe we're not most secure so that's why i've been looking to examples of you know that's why um Steve's work on like the value of data brokers, I think will be very important looking at Access Act. And also I've been one example to point out is Harmony Labs where they're creating an actual service to actually manage companies' data. Their companies are going to them now and saying, we don't want to hold on to our data because we know this is going to get us in trouble. We don't want to be responsible. Please hold on to our customers' data for us. And that's a fascinating new service. And I think Steve's been calling that for a while, you know, the whole rich area of brokerage. And the only thing I'm going to add, and then I'll let Steve, because he knows what he's talking about, finish this topic, right? But the gentleman said- By the way, the question was originally for Steve. Yes, go on. The, the, <laughs> we, provide, we provide our opinions, and then Steve wraps it up by providing- <laughs> He puts a bow around it, yes. He ties it up, puts it neatly in. It's run the home, okay? Come on. So, but this is collaborative, the, collaborative the designer. Between Astro and Vala, right, <laughs> who was- one of the first people who said, we need a new form of capitalism. And one of the things that he talks about is precisely what he just said. Just because we can, we shouldn't do it. Let's look for a way where like, you know, everybody has to retain the ability to remain human versus like trading off the humanity for, for, for something else. I mean, US Congress picked up a new bill that is running through the Senate where like, you know, they, what they call the, what's it, stalker, net, stalker software, stalkerware, right? Mm -hmm. Software that keeps your information without you knowing that it's keeping it that it's used in different ways. I mean, they're trying to, to, to go against that. So the idea here is like, you know, we're starting to hear things like you say, right? But still the overwhelmingly vast significant majority of people are still trying to see how much they can get away with because it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier than having to commit to something that, that is getting more complicated. But that, and, and so, and, and I don't think there should be a moral panic about that. There, you know, there are assholes out there that, that, um, sail close to the wind, and there, well, and there are sorry, people out there. Who don't speak Australian? He said assholes. Live coast to coast on national uh, radio here. Uh, <laughs> this is this right. is rated in Australia. If we're um, hey, look, um, that is the story of business. Um, people, and I don't think there should be a moral panic about people pushing the envelope too far. I mean, the oil industry was based. On, on just laying waste to incredible um, patches of land um, in the same way that data mining and, and, and big data is laying, is strip mining the internet. Um, so people are going too far and they will snap back and the pendulum swings. I think that Trisha's highlighting that there's a lot of consumer unrest and that unrest is actually now becoming um, a feature of boardroom conversations and some people are saying look we've, yeah. we've gone too far some people are saying hey we could we could do very well by making 10 billion dollar profit instead of a 50 billion dollar profit um now um the question that i think i heard from vala was what are people asking me about and they are asking about what is the policy setting um if data is valuable and if entire business models are being based on um monetizing data and leveraging data um, that, that in itself can't be a bad thing. Um, how do you achieve some sort of win-win out of that? And what are the models that we look for? So we've talked a lot about data mining for a long time. It's a fairly easy metaphor. I think a, I think a better metaphor is data refining. Um, mm. So I'm beginning to think about the data supply chains that go from source to end user and beyond. Um, how do you process data? What's the process of these really smart people that are using? And again, it's like, the, the petrochemical industry has incredible scientists that come up with how do you reform atoms into plastic and pharmaceuticals. Data science is a similar thing. How do you take ones and zeros and how do you use context and how do you use all of these signals to come up with information products? Now that's a valid thing as long as the, the, um, the upside, the economic upside of that stuff is shared properly. And you know, this, this is business capitalism 101. How do you come up with new business models that are equitable and, and there will be magnates for a period of time that, you know, the oil magnates were terrible people and now the data magnates are largely. When you start talking um, about like sharing the profits with the owner of the data, we're scaring it, we're skating a very, very, very. Stakeholders, you don't need, you don't need ownership. There are stakeholders in this, in this game. Call it what you want. You but I mean, when about, you start, yeah. when you start talking about like sharing the, the, the profit with the person from whom the data originator or is supposed to be the stakeholder, the, the interested party, whatever. Then you get into a very, very thin line where like, you know, 
yeah, you can do it, but seriously, it, 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 that's, that's, I don't even want to bring up the name because we discuss it in private emails, but I, I don't want to get into that discussion. I don't think that is, is, is a discussion. Why not? I mean, we, we all agree that when there is a new business, like, like mining, or when there's, um, when there's a new business like telecommunication that's using some fairly weird resource like electromagnetic spectrum, I mean, how the hell do you regulate that? We figured that out. And we will figure out how to regulate uh, the business of data in a similar way. And, and I don't think that it's, um, I don't think it's crazy to think in terms of how do you do this equitably? How do you, how do you um, monetize data without damaging people? And there's a number of different ways of doing that. I'm not necessarily saying that you license people and you give them micropayments on a blockchain because I've just used your health data. Mm. I'm no, not talking about that. All, absolutely, do it. That, that's the right way to go about it. Of course. Hey, first way to universal basic income I can think of, you know. <laughs> Do you see, we're, we're launching into some preconceived patterns about what the outcomes are. We're launching into whether it's going to be taxation or universal income or paying people for data. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I there are new not. business models that's creating value. And how do you, how do you, how, does, how do people that. participate in this? So, but hey, we got a question from, to the panel. And, and one of the questions was, how do you see the merge of the lack of data ownership and the lack uh, and the lack of that in cybersecurity companies, how do you, from Jesus here, if you enforce data ownership, you need to enforce cybersecurity as well. Do they have to, do they have to go together is the question she, he's asking. Oh yeah, well look, you know, I've, I've spoken fairly positively about the theory of data brokers. And, um, and I think that if we, if we imagine data supply chains and there will be intermediaries and processes and brokers that are, that are part of the landscape and very important. Certain data brokers in the past have screwed up big time with bad security. Um, now we don't let, you know, every time there's a bank robbery, we don't say that banking is broken. Um, now there have been- We must get rid of the banks. The banks are the issue. Right, there are spectacular <laughs> data breaches and we will, we will have to have a baseline of security. Security like product safety though, we have let the market dictate. We've let the invisible hand of the market um, try and produce safety outcomes and, and security outcomes. It doesn't work. Um, people like Bruce Schneier are very eloquent mm. saying that if we want security, especially in things like the internet of things, I mean, what, what is the security of this thing? What's the security, the information security of my pacemaker? Um, these things are going to have to be regulated. There's going to have to be a baseline security expectation. Yeah, but the, 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 the least secure that we make them, the easier that it is to, to collect the data and use it. So mm. there's, a, there's a huge balance between yeah, there's tension there. And access to information. Right? Uh, hey, Sus, to answer your question, Esteban, are you done? Did you? Um, Jesus, to also follow up on what Steve's answer is, uh, this is just the link back to what I said earlier. This is why I think brokers, like like what Harmony Labs is doing is fascinating because you do have companies who realize we don't know how to manage our data and nor do we want to have the responsibility of it. So we want to de-risk and we want to delegate that to somebody else. So there is, they're exploring this new service where they're holding on to companies' data for them because they know that you can't, also, if you're going to own it, you also have to deal with or store it. You have to be able to have the security for it. And that's a lot to ask of every single company. So I think we're going to see more of those services come about. How many of your clients ask you about new business model innovation versus modernizing existing processes to make them faster, smarter? Is there more of a pendulum shift to understanding the data supply chain, as Steve mentioned, with the purpose of new sources of revenue with new capabilities versus just modernization initiatives? You, you jump too many years ahead, dude. <laughs> I mean, most people don't even understand data. I didn't even know that was a scripted question, but go ahead. You're, you're, jumping, you're jumping to like, you know, the, the 1% conversations versus the 98% that are like, you know, uh, what is data again? I, I know that I have studied this in school, but I don't remember, you know. So, so yes, the, the, the few people that I talk to, and I let somebody who actually has more knowledge than I do, but the few people that I talk to about very advanced models of usage of data and advanced models of like, you know, privacy and things like that, we have great conversations that probably will never get to be implemented, or at least it won't be for the next decade or so. Why is that? Other people. Why is that? Because we don't have, because like Steve is saying, we don't have the constructs, like, like Trisha is saying, we don't have the legal entities, we don't have the ability to actually get to the decision that like, you know, if I could pry into your life, I will give you something that you want in return, but 
you have to have the ability to take it back at any time. You have the ability to say no at every specific instance versus like, you know, in mass. You have the ability to have the ability to control the information as it flows. You have the ability to like know what information it is. I mean, ask anybody when they go to Google and find out what Google knows about it, everybody's shocked about it. But I think what Esteban is saying is super important is that a lot of times people think that we have all the technology figured out. And, and in fact, we haven't figured it all out. And we're, there's so much that needs to be worked on. And in particular, design needs to be brought into the conversation. What Esteban just stated about, like even tracking, you know, the, what's happening in the whole entire supply chain, that's also a design issue because you can have it even technically worked out, but then how do you, how do you communicate the, in, that interface to users who may not have the, even the same exact tech literacy? So there's a lot of work to be done in that area of bringing design in to even be able to communicate all the things that we could be doing with data right now. Actually, I think you, you made a really good point, Trisha, earlier, and I think you're backing up, Steve. It's, it's asymmetrical. Right, the amount of information on the other side is asymmetrical, and the average individual can't mm -hmm. access that, doesn't understand the flows, doesn't understand the digital feedback loops, doesn't even know how that data is being used or applied, or even not even that. Just, I mean, they would never even understand how it's being monetized. Right, so, so they're dynamic, completely operating in the dark. We're there's operating a dynamic in the dark. there that that we need to listen to, and the dynamic is is that there's a user revolt, there's a level of, of um. Of, of, um, of anger about how people are being abused online. And so what's powering a lot of these movements, like the, the idea to own data, and in my world, the self-sovereign identity movement, a lot of this is um, people becoming so fed up with the practices of business that they're trying to um, reclaim ownership. The language gets very, very political, and you can understand why people want to reclaim ownership. They want to reclaim control. And they're using um, models or they're using... Um, emotional outcomes that they think will give them the outcomes that they're looking for. Um, and um, yeah, it, the asymmetry is terrible. The, the richest people in the world right now have made incredible fortunes out of stuff that is so intangible, it's a joke. You know, how do you make money out of maths? How do you make money out of statistics? Wow. Um, and so the pendulum will swing back. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that we need something like a Ralph Nader of, of data. We need somebody who will... Um, be the champion um, of the consumer and and consumer rights I think is such a really interesting historical and legal um, precedent for well, this. The revolt is actually very interesting Steve think about this right I mean we may get to a point where only the rich will have privacy of data if you do this improperly. I tell you the rich already have privacy of data that we don't have access to. <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, the, the, the terrible truth is the rich people get better justice than others and so there is some tremendous um, the, the access to resources and the access to, to legal power um, correlates with with um, with economics, and that's a terrible thing. So we, we have this new term here as data inequality here. Right, but this is why I think. But, but I'm sorry, Teresa. One thing: the, the thing is like you know, if you have the resources, money, people, otherwise, to build your own ecosystem, then you control who owns and how the data is used. But that's what that's what the oil industry used to be like. People would just ride their their rigs into people's farmlands, and they would dig stuff up. And and we we legislated around that. We came up with new jurisprudence a hundred years ago that corrected the excesses of a new industry. And, and a lot of those, a lot of the same legal uh, underlines for that jurisprudence still exist today for data, except that we chose not to use them. That's what I was saying at the beginning. We had the legal entities. We're choosing not to use them because there's so much money and so much power to be gained from not using them and creating an ecosystem that is still the wild, wild west that we're actually choosing to do that until we, and somebody says, this is not going to continue. At some point, some catalyst is going to change the way that we use data because we cannot. this is not sustainable. Well, I think we're at that catalyst right now, and that's why I've been trying to move the conversation beyond privacy because I think privacy is actually just a smaller part of what we're actually talking about. What's at yes. stake is personhood. It's because personhood is the ability to actually have agency over your life and livelihood. And what Stephen Esteban was saying earlier is that the wealthy have um, more ability to control their privacy, but actually what they're able to control is their personhood. Because, you know, you can, if you have the control to determine how the algorithms or how certain outcomes happen in your life, or you have the money to control that, that's the ability to have agency. But the problem right now is that there's so much happening with machine learning, biometrics, and facial recognition that the people who have less access to resources have less ability to control the outcomes. And one of the best articles that's been written about this is to look at the Compass software written. Um, there was an amazing article written by Julie Engwin and Sarah Mata who did this research. I'll post a link here where they show that courtrooms, well-meaning judges around the country have been 
adopting software to automatically assign bail and determine risk level of somebody. But yeah. for some reason, what happened was that the people who were dark skinned were assigned a high risk score. And the company said, well, we don't use race. We don't use race at all. You know, and they weren't using machine learning or any kind of biometrics. But the reality is that bias and racism is already inscribed into these systems of the historical data that they were using their algorithms to infer. And however, they weighted their algorithm did not take into account the biases that their data was drawing upon. So you can say, oh, yeah, we're just using historical models, just like the Weather Channel. It's neutral. It's math. But it's not because we are living in a human system that's complex and if you don't account for that it actually affects your personhood and the people who do have more resources will be able to control their personhood whereas the people who have less resources won't be able to and this is why i really want to talk about personhood as the issue that's actually bigger than privacy the, the people that run to new zealand and and you know to, to no detriment of australia which i think is better by the way steve but the people that run to New Zealand, <laughs> I would agree with you. Yeah, to, to build their doomsday, their doomsday properties, and, and they, they withdraw from the grid and then leave separate. They have the resources to live independent, not to have to pay things with credit cards, and to have to be tracked by public cameras and so forth. They build their own, yeah, they, they manage the person who within a closed ecosystem. When you get to that point, you really don't have an issue with your data being public or private. There's people that we don't know that exist in this world that are worth many, many, many billions of dollars, but because they actually manage to stay outside of, to, to live in their own ecosystems. I mean, but that, that's not, that's not real. The, 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 that's not the realm that we can get to with everybody. We cannot get to the point where like, we all build our own ecosystems. We all need to build in societies and in public ecosystems. So we, instead of saying there's somebody who can do it better because they have money, we need to find the, the way to say, Okay, like Steve said earlier, to a certain extent, let's share the the, the, the burden here, right? Uh, I mean, okay. let's share not the not the cost and the, the profit, but let's share the burden on this. I, I love this talk of personhood. I, th I think that there's a, a level of humanity that's much more richer. Um, mm. You know, privacy is almost a proxy for for a little bit of human rights. Um, and what, what we haven't really discussed yet, and, and this is not for Disrupt TV, this is a big social discussion, <laughs> is what does... What does the, the what does an orderly what does a civilized internet look like? Mm. And it's such an early days. We don't know what the rule of law really looks like. That's that's what I think that GDPR and CCPA are. <clears throat> these are lights on the hill. The, the 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 taste of what an orderly internet is going to look like. And you know, GDPR is not the answer. It's a stepping stone. I would I would actually say your question's even bigger, and it's not just about what a civil internet looks like, but it's really about what does our a digital humanity look like? Because for, for because for so long yep. the kind of laws yep. we've created have assumed that data is a representation of our of ourselves, still prioritizing physical life, you know, phys as the priority. But really, what we're talking about now is that our digital selves are just as important as what happens in our physical world. And so, really, we're talking about the future of our physical of our digital humanity. And all of these technologies are the building blocks that we're still trying to figure out of like what Esteban is saying is like, what, are, what is the future of this world looks like? We're, it's still in process, but really this is a question about what does our digital humanity look like? It's such, it's such a big question that we just, need to do. That, I mean, to support that in, in 1980s, 1980s in academia, uh, you had access to the, to the civilized internet, Archie, Gopher, uh, information shared. You connected through an 8600 bot to a, to a shared <laughs> access that only come, you know, went through Archie and Gopher, you found articles and, and, and uh, academia stuff, and you share based on specific rules that were delineated, same thing with the bulletin boards and other stuff. We had a civilized internet, but then- It was nice, I miss it. Yeah, but then, then you know, there was money to be made. So, so you know, <laughs> there's money to be made, society- right, So we go from here and the pendulum swings and, and now it's coming back somewhere. I, you know what? I'm I'm happy with with the gopher. I'd, I'd be perfectly fine using a gopher to find where the DB open hours. I have no problem with I, that. I, I'm not happy with the gopher because you know why? That world was only available to a few people who had yeah. the privilege to access it. So what we have to design yeah. is a more open world that has become way more complex. It's just that the internet became the original designers did not think about human complexity and the, all the you know myriads of yeah. manifestations of. of of humanity, but Bala, you're, you're using you're using Zoom and you're using Skype and you're using internet today to have a discussion about whether Gopher is the better way to go. I mean, come on. It's a reminder from uh, Professor Clay Christensen who said, "You may hate gravity, but gravity doesn't care." You can rest up. <laughs> <laughs> Will we be invited into your Gopher land? 
Do you, will you invite us to your gopher land? Are we cool enough to get in? Well, so, so in 1988, I was managing a computer, a computer lab for Cal State University Hayward, today called Cal State uh, East Bay. And uh, part of the access that I had was access to the internet that anybody could use at any time for anything. There was no limited to the few. We actually had dialing lines. People could dial into the number and access it and go on. So what? It was, not a, it was not an elite world. It was a very open world. The difference was it was really hard to manage and to maneuver. There was no Zoom. There was no Skype. There was no like, you know, real video, right? So th this is about trade-offs. I mean, we decided we want to like, you know, see my, my wonderful oh, view. Come on, Esteban. It, like, there, was a, there was a period in time where people um, longed to build their own airplanes again because they didn't like the way that airports and the air traffic controllers and, and Boeing were taking over. I mean, did, your, your world was interesting back then, but it was not civilization. It was people just playing with a brand new technology. And it's just, you know, I think the, the lessons are, are all gone. We, we, civilization is different. We are talking about um, almost ubiquitous technologies that, that should be making um, economic outcomes for people. It should be improving people's health and it should be improving people's happiness and humanity. So, you know, um, I, I don't know. What <laughs> I, I, I have no problem in trading off parts of my, my, my wonderful, beautiful private world that you could call it, which it wasn't, but we're not going to go down 30 years of the, uh, dispute that. You know, I have no problem trading that off for something better. But what I have a problem with is in the trade-off, I end up losing, uh, you know, fundamental ability to control who sees my data and what they use it for. That I have a problem for with. Those, for those who are following, we are here with Trisha Wong, Esteban Kolsky, and Steve Wilson, and Val and I are here talking about where is the world of data ownership, um, and we're still confused. Uh, so <laughs> let's go to our last segment, which is new models of data ownership. Do we even have them? What do we think? Where are we headed there? Let's go there. Um, Bala, why don't you lead the discussion? So, Well, so when we talk about new models, maybe we should talk about other young companies on your radar that, that are- you know, Who's getting it right? Yeah, who's getting it right? It doesn't have to be young, but is, is there a company that you would point to that is looking at ethical or human use of data, looking at privacy and the whole self and is guided by the right core values and guiding principles and, and someone that you could, you could uh, you know, reference as a positive, someone who's on a positive direction. So there's three companies that I've been looking at. Esteban, you want to jump in? Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just a, a rubber rouser, but I'm going to defer to my two esteemed colleagues who know what they're talking about to give you the names of those companies. <laughs> Trisha? Thank you. Now that I have been deferred to, I can speak. So there are three companies. Deference, yes. One is I've been looking closely at what uh, Sensing has been doing, Jeff Jonas's work, is that he's, it's one of the, I say, the best entity resolution software out there, and you can do an install in a private cloud. And what's amazing about what he's done is that he's been very clear about no personal data ever flows through Sensing. And there's a lot of companies who are starting to do that, where they're saying, look, we want you to buy our software and just install it in your private cloud. It doesn't have to pass through ours. So that's, and if we look at, there's more companies that are following that model. So I've been looking also at DGI with the JI, which is, you know, the largest uh, drone. Um, they own 75% of the drone market. And what's fascinating about that one is I was at a talk that Adam Lisberg was giving and he was saying, look, everyone was very concerned. This is a Chinese owned company. They were like, oh, you're kind of being like Huawei. And they're like, no, no, we're different. And so what they've done a lot of effort to, uh, to be clear on is through their design and through their communication, they've, they've made it really clear to people to say, your data never passes through our servers. You know, it doesn't even go through the cloud. And we've also hired all these, you know, external crypto experts to actually check out our software, to do hardcore code review. And they do a lot of publication about this. So I just think that you're starting to see more mature companies and also lead thought leaders like Jeff Jonas really making sure that they're designing software that actually is better for customers. And he was like, look, I can make a lot more money if I had all the software going to the cloud. And then you would have to spend a lot more to hiring our team. But he's like, I don't have to make, you know, 100 billion. I can make 10 billion, you know? So I think that's what like, I think Vala or someone was saying earlier about the kind of philosophy for capitalism. And then another company, I was actually talking to Andrew Nevis about this last night, is I'm really interested in the blockchain space um, because of companies like Everest, 
that are not just using it for cryptocurrency, but really working on digital identity and working with governments and working with institutions to really solve how do you deal with identity? How do you make sure that there are a distributed, like how are resources being distributed in a society? And they're actually solving real problems for governments. So those are the three places I've been keeping an eye on. Perfect examples. Steve? Um, look, I'm gonna echo what, what Trish said, the innovation that's happening um, and the, the modesty and restraint that's being shown. Um, and, I, and I think the startups are great. Um, I, I, I keep spending a lot of my time trying to look at what the big companies are doing and especially in the health space. And um, there's been no breakthrough yet. Um, but, you know, this is really early days. Um, I keep asking people that I work with to um, have a more advanced contract or compact. The, the, the privacy compact is a word that Ray started using four or five years ago. It's one of the things that really attracted me to Constellation um, was trying to figure out a new unwritten understanding. Um, mm. So the thing that I've asked people to think about is that a conventional privacy policy is a way of communicating you know, business philosophy to a, to a customer and to a regulator. And a privacy policy will often set out, you know, this is what we know about you. This is what information we collect about you. This is why we collect it. And then it's often thought of as a static document because your business model changes and your big data position changes over time. So companies, especially in healthcare, that are evolving all the time and they're working out insights. Um, I think the new compact is not do we not what do we know about you, but what what might we know about you? And how do you get people into a conversation that makes them feel as though they are involved with the evolution of big data so that the data that you collect today in three years time, it might actually wind up predicting what my travel preferences are and it might do it properly. I mean, at the moment, the state of AI, we, we tie ourselves in knots about AI, but for God's sake, um, the browser keeps advertising shirts that I just bought this week. <laughs> so um, it's not much more than an if then else at the moment, but th there are algorithms usefully be agents for us in cyberspace and to be able to um, predict our, our um, desires and predict our health and so on. And that idea about how do you produce the right level of transparency without overwhelming people. At the moment, privacy gets such a bad rap. People have got consent fatigue, they've got cookie fatigue. We're experiencing massive fatigue is, is what Steve's saying here. So, yeah. So, oh, so yeah. Esteban, on your end, to wrap up, what do you think? What, what are you seeing? It is. So, so I don't... Esteban's um, right to be cynical. A lot of this has just been driven by. Yeah. Cynical? I haven't been called cynical in a long time. Thank you. But you know, <laughs> I've been called everything else, but cynical is no one that comes back often. But uh, <laughs> look, this is, this is, to me, it's the bottom line. Joyce, Joyce and Doc Searles do a lot of research, uh, partly in VRM, partly as part of the, the, the Harvard Media Lab. And they do a lot of research in privacy and like in your new models of data ownership and sharing data and all that stuff. You need something, go look at what they're writing about. I promise you that there's more than enough companies doing stuff out there. I agree with Trisha, I agree with Steve. I, I think that the issue here is like, you know, at some point somebody decided that it's, it's better to make money than to make people happy. And I, if I could, it may be my unicorn-ridden rainbow world, but I would like to go to the point where we can make that decision in reverse and say what would make people happy versus what would make people more money. I mean, there's enough money in the world, and, and you know, Ray can confront this with numbers, there's enough money in the world for everybody to do whatever we need to do, but there's not enough happiness, and I would prefer to be happy by not having my privacy violated than by somebody making an extra three or four bucks of my of my, my beautiful. So you'd prefer evenly distributed happiness over evenly distributed money. So we need money. a digital. That's <laughs> what? I think Steve was saying something. Steve, a um, digital baton. A digital you know, baton. The net, what do they call it? The gross happiness index of the country. Of the country. <laughs> Why not? A digital <laughs> baton. Yes, the country <laughs> baton. The two, the two rules for happiness. Leave me alone. That's it. That's the one rule of privacy for happiness. <laughs> so I was saying you'd rather have you'd have a digitally distributed, more equally distributed happiness versus equally distributed money. So that's kind of interesting. I, I'll take being left alone and, and, and you know with money to do what I want to do. That's my happiness. So <laughs> that was the way that privacy. I, I don't know if it froze or it's.
So that's very, very interesting. All right, we've come to no conclusion. We are here on the show talking about data ownership, um, but we've had a very interesting discussion about different angles of data ownership. Here with Trisha Wong, co-founder at Sudden Compass. You can follow her at Trisha, T-R-I-C-I-A-W-A-N-G. And you can follow Esteban Colsi, not on Twitter. In the 1890s. And uh, Steve Wilson, you can follow him at Steve underscore Lockstep, the Vice President Principal Alice at Constellation Research. If you want to follow up on this conversation, you'll be following Esteban's panel at Constellation Connected Enterprise, as we're going to be carrying that further in 20 minutes or less. So we'll be seeing you there. And Trisha and Steve, so seeing you all there. And Vala, on a special Disrupt TV show panel. Vala, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Wonderful discussion. And uh, we'll definitely be looking to this. Uh, listening to this a little bit more. So, Bala, who do we have next week? What's going on with our next episode 169? We, uh, episode 169, yes, we have Aaron Harris, who's CTO at Sage. We have Grant Halloran, who's the CEO of Host Analytics. And one of our favorites, uh, return guests, Nicole France, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, and there will be no show on uh, November 15th, uh, but uh, please tune in for episode 169 next Friday. And uh, you're right, we didn't come to uh, any conclusion. <laughs> data ownership will lead to happiness, but we had three brilliant guests really, you know, expanding our points of view and enriching the conversation. So really appreciate that. Got program notes from our producer, No Show the 8th, but we are back the 15th. No Show the 8th because of Constellation Sorry, Connected no, Enterprise. That's right. No Show on the 8th, back on the 15th. Right, that's right. So, hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV Show. Thanks, everyone, for being on the show. And thanks a lot to our wonderful guests today. Thank you, everyone. See you.